You know, at the moment, the, uh, the food industry expose is like wildly popular entertainment. I don't know if you've noticed this uh, from films like Forks Over Knives and Sugar Coated and Food Incorporated and Fed Up and Vegucated and Farmageddon and Hungry for Change and What the Health and Food Matters and Rotten and GMO OMG, which is a real title I looked up when I was writing this teaching. And audiences, of course, they love this because we love stories and we love conflict even more. You know, it entertains us. What's more entertaining than a good villain? And most of us nurture at least a small amount of cynicism, some of us decidedly more so. In 2018, uh, the world being the way it is, we assume corruption within institutions of power, and often for good reasons, sometimes less so. But the food industry is certainly among the most powerful of institutions. So to have an intrepid journalist or filmmaker pull the back the curtain on said institution only to confirm what many would have already guessed, oh my gosh, there's corruption here. It's as satisfying and entertaining as it is disturbing. And many of us react to news like this. You know, we take up new diets or we make new shopping decisions or we buy a Vitamix, you know, whatever it might be. And of course, some of these dramatic life changes are often fleeting and temporary. In fact, According to a recent NPR report, despite the overwhelming amount of new and damning information on the dangers of unhealthy eating, uh, the rate of fast food consumption actually hasn't slowed even remotely in the last 15 years. In fact, it seems to be going up. Nearly three quarters of Americans are reportedly overweight or obese. 30% of American children are the same. Americans also lead the world in wasting the food that we don't eat. One recent study estimates some $218 billion a year is wasted uh, on food that we don't eat. That's 38 million tons of food that just goes straight into the trash. Uh, much of the food that we eat contributes to the vandalism and destruction of God's good creation. You know, factory farms that destroy the environment and inflict nightmarish suffering on innumerable animals just to create toxic food that keeps you unhealthy and sick. You know, in the Pacific Northwest, uh, food is culturally unavoidable. You know, what hangout doesn't include food? If, if it doesn't, then I don't want to be at it. Um, heck, even Van City, we can't resist the opportunity to have snacks after the gathering, and that's us restraining ourselves. We wanted to serve huge meals, and we do in the summer. Um, our relationship with food often defines entire lifestyles. You know, bodily idolatry is a monster with two heads. One head is the worship of physique and fitness and the illusion of perfection and the magazine cover or the Instagram feed or whatever it might be. But the other head is the insecurity of the body, the endless comparison to other people, the deep wounds of the past that become horrific battles with eating disorders and warped ideas of self. You know, we eat too much or we don't eat enough or we eat the wrong things or we eat the right things for the wrong reasons. And this is all wrapped up in these ideas of globalization and industry and government. And all of these things are intricately complex and tangled up and tethered to humanity and food, connecting humanity with food. And when you begin to examine that complicated tangle, you discover that much of our institutions of food do more than just feed the body. They actually feed something that the New Testament authors call the flesh. Well, the flesh is that bent in every human being away from what is right and true and good and toward what is selfish and destructive. So for example, we're fine with the abuse of creation just as long as it tastes good. And we're fine with the, ideal, ide, ide, uh, the idolatry of the body 
just as, mu- as long as we look good. And we're fine with overeating if it feels good. And yet food, by God's own design, is necessary for sus- sustenance and survival. And more than that, food is actually in and of itself a good thing. In fact, just as a small uh, caveat story, the, the tradition of blessing the food, which doesn't show up in the Bible once, didn't actually develop until this strange period in medieval history. And even then, it was connected to this idea that the material world is bad and the, phys- or the spiritual world is good. So you have to bless the food because the food is inherently bad. So you bless it before you consume it, and that makes it good again. But I would argue that good food, meaning, you know, food that doesn't exploit creation or kill you, uh, that you aren't abusing, good food is already blessed. So you give thanks and you eat it. But food becomes like many other inherently good things. It becomes warped by our own inclination to destroy ourselves. In this sense, food is a very powerful thing. It, It becomes for us a kind of God lumbering over our time, our habits, the way we spend our money, the way we value creation or don't value creation, our relationships with ourselves, with other people, and our relationship with God himself. The very thing designed to feed the body becomes instead food for the flesh, so to speak. You know, at Van City, we are learning to practice the way of Jesus together. It's something that you'll hear us say again and again and again. And these words are very thoughtfully selected. We call it the way of Jesus because it is indeed a way of life. Following Jesus is not merely a set of intellectual beliefs. It's not simply a system of ethics. It is an all-encompassing way of life. And this all-encompassing way of life is not something one simply slips into having converted from one set of beliefs to another. No, this way of life takes practice. It takes a lifetime of practice. And we believe that our church is, among other things, a means by which we, as a family, can come together and practice. Because that is precisely how the way of Jesus has always been done, in the context of togetherness in community. So... We have practical means to actually go about this very lofty ambition, what Cam was just talking about. Every few months, we actually take on a new spiritual discipline, or what we call a practice. And we balance those spiritual disciplines by alternating them with uh, principles of emotional health, because we believe both work together in bringing us to spiritual maturity, both as individual disciples and as a family at large. And interestingly, If you consult any list of historic spiritual disciplines throughout the life of the church for 2,000 years, or if you just take a cursory read of the Old Testament or especially the New Testament, the first four uh, books, the biographies of Jesus' life, you will quickly come to the practice of fasting. So with that said, if you guys don't mind, turn in your Bibles to the New Testament, the Gospel of John, chapter 4. If you're new to the Bible, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John is, as many of you know, uh, one among four first century biographies to chronicle some of the life and teaching of this controversial figure of history that we call Jesus of Nazareth. And in the fourth chapter of John's biography, there's this fascinating story that details Jesus' interaction with a woman sitting at a well. I'm sure a lot of you guys have heard it already. But there's an interesting dimension of this text that I'd like to draw our attention to this evening. So if you're there, let's read beginning in John chapter 4, verse 4. It says, Now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. 
When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will, give, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The story goes on. There's a good bit of dialogue. Skip down to verse 27. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the long-awaited king of Israel, the king? They came out of town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? (laughs) My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I don't know about you guys, but I often read Jesus like a frustrating artist type, you know, like, you know the kind, he's always preferring metaphor and ambiguity when clarity and practicality are clearly preferable. But uh, though Jesus does, he actually does that on purpose in quite a bit. He does speak an artistic parable quite a bit. Other times, I think he means to be quite clear. And I would argue that this is probably one of those cases. Jesus means to say that he is actually nourished by God. He is sustained by a power more crucial than just food, which you do need to survive. And why is he bringing this up? He seems to be drawing a contrast between two types of sustenance, between food and between God, which is really interesting. Turn backward in your Bible to the Gospel of Luke, if you don't mind. Luke chapter 5. In this story, Jesus is approached by religious leaders and asked how he and his students, his apprentices, his disciples, will go about the practice of fasting. They assume that he will, so they want to know what his take on it is. Let's read Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 33. They, the religious leaders, said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. And Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. In those days, they, his disciples, will fast. Now, there's obviously quite a bit going on in this text, but I want you to notice this. Jesus does encourage fasting. Though his disciples were not practicing the discipline with regularity at that point in time, Jesus declares that they will, and they will soon. Why would the religious leaders, uh, who are the Bible scholars of Jesus' day, assume that Jesus, who's a rabbi, a teacher, would have a take on and an approach to fasting. And the answer in the short sense is that fasting shows up all throughout the Torah, the Bible of Jesus' day. In the Old Testament, God's people fasted. In the New Testament, Jesus himself fasts, and he does so regularly. Eventually, disciples of Jesus take up regular fasting as well. So did the early church for years and years. In Jesus' teaching, it's actually quite clear that he assumes his followers will fast. If you remember just a, a few weeks ago when we were teaching through Matthew, Jesus talks about a right and a wrong way to do acts of spiritual discipline, and he says to his disciples, when you fast, and then he tells them how they should and shouldn't go about it. Not like, hey, listen, if you decide to fast, but he just assumes that they're going to do it. And interestingly, my guess is that if we were to take like an anonymous poll of this room, almost no one, I'm guessing, would claim to fast regularly. That's, you know, me going out on a limb. In fact, I wonder how many of us would even claim to know what fasting is for and how they should do it all. At least I'm, I'm certainly did. I had a history with fasting and I didn't know what the heck it was about until somewhat recently. And that's okay. Really, that just means that if you feel that way, chances are you're not alone. The person on the right and the left are right there with you. But 
It does give us pause, I think, doesn't it? You know, if you think that when you learn of a practice of Jesus, well represented in the scriptures, well represented in the life of Jesus himself and in the early church and his followers, but that we rarely or never take on ourselves, we should at least stop and ask ourselves, hey, what's up with, what's up with that, right? Right? Yeah, okay, great. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> he works here. He's supposed to do that. The New Testament actually doesn't offer a handbook for how fasting is accomplished in the specific sense, which is kind of frustrating. But it, even in the absence of really detailed instruction, fasting had become a regular staple of the church really early on. In fact, early church writings indicate that some of Jesus' followers had taken to the practice of fasting twice a week, which was uh, not unlike many first century observant Jews who did the exact same thing. But get this, the disciples of Jesus did it on Wednesday and Friday, and they did it as a deliberate act of disrespect to the Pharisees who did their practice on Monday and Thursday um, because, you know, the early church was very punk rock. So in, in my studies, I actually found this quote from the Didache. It says, do not let your fast coincide with those of the hypocrites, which is the affectionate name for the Pharisees. They fast on Monday and Thursday, so you must fast on Wednesday and Friday. Uh, I think that's awesome. And notice the assumption is that fasting is happening regardless of semantics about the day or who they're trying to tick off. And interestingly, the practice of scheduled fasting went on to become a traditional fixture of the church's spiritual disciplines. And from what we can tell, the dominant mode of fasting in general among Christians for hundreds of years was a scheduled uh, twice a week fast. Um, even many of our church calendar traditions that we uh, know about well, regardless of what tradition you belong to or have come from, like Lent, for example, which is the 40 days observed on the church calendar prior to Easter, a Lent was originally a time of fasting. Those observing Lent would abstain from food and drink during the day and then have a small meal in the evening. And today, it's funny because modern Christians love to dabble in Lent, but they give up something that they pick, like a TV show or social media or whatever it might be, and we'll talk about that more in just a bit. In the 18th century, John Wesley panicked that fasting had, at that time, began to, it had begun to vanish from the lives of Protestant Christians. And he wrote this, I fear there are now thousands of Methodists, Methodists so-called, <laughs> both in England and in Ireland, who following the same bad example have entirely left off fasting, who are so far from fasting twice a week, as all the stricter Pharisees did, that they do not fast twice in the month. Yeah, are there not some of you who do not fast one day from the beginning of the year to the end? The man who never fasts is no more in the way to heaven than the man who never prays. I love John Wesley, he's so subtle. Um, and I don't, I don't read that quote as any sort of guilt trip to us, but rather to illustrate the great seriousness with which Israel and Jesus and the early church for hundreds of years all regarded the spiritual discipline of fasting. And there are, of course, many reasons that fasting has all but vanished from modern practice that we don't have time to get into. Honestly, if I were to venture a guess, though personally, I would propose that most of us here this evening do not fast, not because we've seen the discipline abused and not because we're afraid of legalism per se, but really because we don't get it. Uh, we don't know why we would fast or how. So 
before we begin this new practice in our communities, let's try and dispel some of that confusion. And we'll begin with some basic definitions of what the heck fasting is in the first place by clearing up what fasting is not. So the first is this, fasting is not abstaining. You know, there is a spiritual discipline of abstinence and it's not fasting. Abstaining is when you select an item, you know, like a certain luxury that you enjoy, uh, entertainment or social media or whatever it might be, and you deliberately abstain from that one thing for a set of period of time as an act of focused discipline and sacrifice in your life, meaning you can't fast from Instagram or Netflix or sugar or whatever it might be. That's abstinence. This is fasting is something different. Secondly, fasting is not a restricted diet. And uh, I just learned about this this week, so it shows what I know. Uh, I've heard of this thing called like a Daniel fast, apparently. It's, you, apparently one eats like only meat and vegetables or meat and, or fruit and vegetables, I don't know, for a set period of time. That's not a fast, and that's a restricted diet. Uh, the word fasting doesn't even show up in the book of Daniel, so I'm not re- sure where that came from. I've also heard of this new thing called intermittent fasting, which is like, correct me if I'm wrong, if someone does this, but it's like when you only eat within a scheduled eight-hour period or something like that. Something Maybe it's awesome. I don't know about it. I can't keep up. Uh, at any rate, good or bad, that's not fasting. That's, uh, that's just only eating within an eight-hour period. Okay, so third, fasting is not manipulation, meaning you don't fast so that you can pressure God into doing something. And this is the idea that I was exposed to early on at a young age. Um, this is like when you imagine fasting uh, in such a way that it reduces prayer to kind of like the lottery, and fasting is like buying extra tickets so that your chances of winning get even better. And of course, we actually believe at Van City that God is relational and that he is responsive. We believe that he actually, God actually acts differently than he would based on the actions and the prayers of his people. We believe that a ton. For, for more on this topic, see the Bible. But fasting is not a way to get better odds with prayer. So if fasting is not abstaining, it's not a restricted diet, it's not a means of coaxing an otherwise you know, uncooperative God, what is it? Well, in the simplest terms, fasting is the voluntary choice to not eat food at all, or in many cases to neither eat nor drink for a specific period of time. Now, the question then is, why would someone make a voluntary choice like that, to not eat at all or not eat and drink at all for a specific amount of time? Well, there are several reasons, and really the next few weeks are all about unpacking those reasons in a bit more detail. Tonight, I'm going to give you guys just a broad overview of the reasons why you might fast. First, fasting is a way for us to respond to significant moments in our lives and in the world. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight puts it this way. The focus of the Bible on fasting is not on what we get from fasting or on motivating people to fast in order to acquire something, but instead lands squarely on responding to sacred moments in life. Fasting enters into how God interprets, experiences, understands, and explains significant events. Fasting, in fact, enters into God's pathos or into what God thinks and feels about death, sin, war, violence, and injustice. Fasting is also a form of prayer, believe it or not, a means by which the disciple of Jesus prays with their entire body. After all, you are not simply a spirit in a body. You are a spirit and a body. And the, disciple of fa- the discipline of fasting, rather, draws our attention to both our spiritual and our physical being. 
In fasting, the great hunger of your heart and your mind to see a prayer answered begins to permeate the body itself. Fasting is a means by which we remember the poor and the oppressed, a way to go without so that you can stand in solidarity with those who have little or none. And finally, fasting is a way that we draw nourishment from God rather than from food. And this is where our practice will begin in the week ahead. You know, in the New Testament, one master apprentice of Jesus called Paul talks about this strange and sinister thing that I mentioned earlier. He calls it the sarks in Greek or something that our Bibles usually translate as the flesh. And the flesh is, again, that selfish bent of every human being, the broken, warped dimension of your personhood. Paul puts it like this. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, Paul, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit, the outworking of walking with the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to King Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. You and I are made up of conflicted pieces, aren't we? If you're a disciple of Jesus, you have God's spirit alive in you. And that means, listen, if you are a disciple of Jesus, you have God's spirit. Your deepest, truest desires, whether it feels this way or not, are for the things of God. But we often live in ways that contradict what God says is true about us. That's the flesh. For Paul, freedom, being truly free, isn't the ability to do whatever the heck you want. That's actually a kind of bondage. Paul calls it slavery. Instead, freedom to live in accordance with what is most true of you, that is what it means to truly be free. Free to be who God says you actually are. For this reason, the New Testament goes on and on and on and on with these really hardcore descriptions about what it means to live as you truly are. And it uses terms like die to yourself, crucify your flesh, deny yourself. And listen, fasting is one way to do exactly that. Think back to that passage in John's gospel we read earlier. In Jesus' really profound words, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So when you choose to fast, you relinquish nourishment from food in a focused effort to instead draw nourishment from God. 
And in doing so, you often grow in your disciplined restraint. Your willpower gets engaged and emboldened. Many have written on the powerful connection of fasting to growth and discipline in the broad self. Thomas Kempis said this, Restrain from gluttony, and thou shalt the more easily restrain all the inclinations of the flesh. Augustine answered the question of why fast with this, because it is sometimes necessary to check the delight of the flesh in respect to illicit pleasures in order to keep it from yielding to illicit joys. Richard Foster, who wrote in Celebration of Discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. If pride controls us, it will be revealed almost immediately. Anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, fear, if they are within us, they will surface during fasting. They are getting at something, all these people, these thinkers, that Paul wrote on quite a bit, and he said this, Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. And of course, what teaching on a new practice would ever be complete without a word from Dallas Willard? So here it is. This discipline teaches us a lot about ourselves very quickly. It will certainly prove humiliating to, humiliating to us as it reveals to us how much our peace depends upon the pleasures of eating. It may also bring to mind how we are using food pleasure to assuage the discomforts caused in our bodies by faithless and unwise living and attitudes, lack of self-worth, meaningless work, purposeless existence, or lack of rest or exercise. If nothing else, though, it will certainly demonstrate how powerful and clever our body is in getting its own way against our strongest resolves. In more than a year now of talking about the spiritual disciplines, about self-denial, about practicing the way of Jesus, self-control and discipline are the crucial center to which we continue to gravitate. And in finding those things, we're having a larger conversation about what it means to be free. All of this is about freedom. Any apprentice of a master realizes that self-control and self-discipline are necessary to train in any art form, in any style of life. And we are apprentices of Master Jesus. So self-control and self-discipline are every bit and more so important for us. So in the week ahead, in the week ahead let's practice the way of Jesus together. We'll do that by going to practicetheway.org slash fasting. And together with your community, you'll make a plan to fast once a day for the next three weeks. Now, our, our encouragement to you is to do this together on the day that your community gathers, using the time that you would have dinner together to instead talk and pray because you won't be eating. And uh, there's no biblical time limit for fasting. Ordinarily, in the Bible and throughout the church history, uh, fasting has been done for about 12 hours at a time, meaning sun up to sundown or the other way around, uh, which breaks out into you skip two meals in a 24-hour period. You skip breakfast and lunch and have a late dinner or however you want to arrange it. Now, a small caveat this is not a command, it's not a rule, we're not saying you absolutely have to go do this or you're not a part of NCD or anything like that. It, even if I did, I doubt you'd listen. So, um, This is really an invitation. It is an invitation to grow in the practices of Jesus. And there are reasons, valid reasons, one might wait to begin this particular practice. Uh, for instance, the obvious one I can think of is that fasting should not be engaged by those who may struggle deeply with body image 
or those struggling with an eating disorder. We actually have a, an excellent podcast that'll be out um, tomorrow with our friend Bethany, who was teaching here last week, and my wife Abby, who are talking through those two topics in detail. It's incredible, and it's a great resource if you're thinking through those things or you just want to learn more. Um, there are other reasons that you might not fast, at least not right now. Uh, fasting really shouldn't be taken on if you're doing it because it kind of sounds fun for dietary uh, implications, like, oh, this is a great occasion to lose a couple pounds or I'll detox, you know, that kind of thing. If that's where your head's at, let's figure it out first and then start fasting. Now, that doesn't mean, and please hear me on this, that does not mean that we require expertise before you begin. Really, I'm assuming the vast majority of us will be starting somewhere near square one. And that's totally fine. In fact, that's great. It'll be an awesome journey for us to go on together. If you do feel like it's not a great time for you to fast, if you do struggle with images uh, or, or self-image, your, your bodily image or eating disorder, something like that, then we'd, we would encourage you to make your time in this practice about figuring out why that is or beginning the journey of figuring out why that is. So you might uh, find a therapist or a counselor or a close friend and begin to talk and work through what areas in your life are in need of healing and breakthrough rather than just sitting back and not fasting or doing anything at all. Um, if you're not yet in a community and you want to try it or you're listening to this online in the future, uh, feel free to join us just the same. Take on this practice, grab a friend or two, and go at it in the weeks ahead. We are uh, a church on a journey, you know, practicing the way of Jesus, the thing we say over and over and over again. These practices are about learning the ways of freedom. I was reading one morning this week a passage in John that hit me in a unique way, something that I've read again and again, but I suddenly stopped and thought for a moment. Uh, it, it said, if Jesus sets you free, you are free through and through. And I thought, oh, that's interesting because uh, so often I hardly feel free at all. You know, the, the spiritual disciplines are about living into what God says is true about you already, but that often don't feel like the case. They are about freedom. The spiritual disciplines, the, the practices of Jesus are about breaking the shackles of the flesh in order to experience the freedom of the spirit. And of course, fasting isn't commanded in the New Testament per se. It's, it's more assumed. But we do want freedom. I'm, I'm sure I can't be speaking for myself when I say, I want to know what it means to be free, to live into the things that God says are already true about me. If God says that I'm free through and through, then I'm tired of, of feeling as though I'm not free at all, let alone through and through. I want to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus. I want to do the things that Jesus did. And if fasting is one step in that journey, if that's what it takes to be like my master, if to step into a way of life to which he has invited me, then let us take that step together as we practice the way of Jesus.